vaster than a falling acting career. More powerful than an angry mistress. Able to keep conspiracy theorists guessing for decades and decades. Look up in the sky. It's a murder. It's a suicide. It's a cover-up. Yes, it's the mysterious death of George Reeves, an actor from Iowa who came to Hollywood with powers and abilities on the same plane of mortal men. George Reeves, who can get the most powerful studio fixers to look the other way, bend boundaries with a few sexy words, and who, disguised as Superman, the hero to many young children across America, fights a never-ending battle for stardom, sex, and the American way. And now, another exciting episode of This Was a Thing, the Retro Podcast. Brought to you by Kellogg's. This was a thing Cigarette ads and Disneyland This was a thing Deborah and Bert kiss in the sand Lana Turner kicks the bucket Elvis Presley starts to sing Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Ray. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. Today we're investigating the mysterious death of TV's first Superman, George Reeves. Was it kryptonite? I feel like it's going to be kryptonite. All right, can we get Mark on for the game? Okay. Uh, Now this was a thing, because although ruled a suicide, there's a lot of odd things surrounding his death. Did he in fact end his own life or was it a jealous lover or was it arranged by one of hollywood's most notorious fixers or was it i don't know was it something else fixer like a task rabbit no 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 it's not like oh i need you to come put in this this fan and then also oh my god i got shot (laughs) now before i get into the death of george Rees, i wanted to give you a quick history of the ubermensch himself Superman. And note, I do want people to realize that I know that Ubermensch technically is translated to overhuman, but uh, back in the 50s, it was translated to Superman based on ah. Man and Superman, the George Bernard Shaw show. Oh, yeah, the play. The play, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's a lot of things like that in this whole story. Now, the Man of Steel was the creation of two high school friends, believe it or not. Jerry Siegel was the story man, while Joe Schuster. He did the illustrations. He did the drawings. I bet you they were really cool in school together. Oh, absolutely. Well, this is how cool they were in high school. They tried to sell stories to magazines to make some money during the Great Depression to no success. So 18-year-old Joe Schuster just decided to create his own fan magazine or fanzine. So he was 18 and during the Depression was making his own fanzines. Now, science fiction, the advance guard of future civilization, produced five issues, but in one of those issues was the first appearance of the duo's character, Superman. Now, I should say this version is way different. Now, he's complete looks completely different. I mean, I think of Superman, I think of like really well built, like black hair, chiseled. Is that is that who the original Superman looked like? This one, since it was in the Depression, he was chosen out of a breadline. 
by a evil scientist who has created a new potion. He's a vagrant, by the way, who created a new potion, and uh, the scientist gave it to him, and surprise, it doesn't go well. Instead of having powers, he has telepathic abilities. Yeah, so it's it didn't really didn't really stick. So this is the original Superman. Yeah, that was he the- was. Homeless. Homeless in he a bread line. Got picked up off a bread line. Yeah, chosen by a scientist that made a new potion. And there was no flying, just the no ability flying. to... No flying, it was just tele- telepathic powers was essentially like the most that he did. Which is what, I can tell what you're thinking? Yeah, okay. like that was like the majority of it. He didn't have the flying, he didn't have the, you know, cool jumping yet. But they threw out that characterization and they started from the beginning, but they kept the name. They were like, this is a solid name. Superman, good name. It's a good name. So they created a new version of the comic, only to keep getting rejected over and over and mind you these guys are just fresh out of high school still so i mean they're 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 hustling for a time jerry thought it was because they were unknowns so he decided that he should take his words and find a more experienced artist he was like you know i know my story's good you know let's see if i can get someone that is known well joe schuster was pissed and he burnt the entire comic that they were pitching only to have the uh the cover remain. What? Yeah, that didn't go over well. So he These guys have issues. Yeah, they he was not happy with that. Paraphrased, you know, th- they had a falling out, they reconciled, found success writing other stories, keeping Superman in their back pocket. So we're back at a reconciliation now, you know, they went through different artists and stuff. So this is early 1938 and a new comic anthology magazine, Action Comics is being planned and Jerry and Joe had the, that reworked Superman book. The character then was reworked to have superhuman strength. That was one of the, which is one of the things that he's known for today. He could fly. Originally, it was him. He could leap tall buildings in a single bound. So it was more of a jumper than a fly. Yes, and he had bullet, yes. And he had bulletproof skin. And he would use his power for good as opposed to having the telepathic powers. Oh, that could be annoying. Now, so they had other stories that were rejected. Jerry and Joe. They wanted to see Superman get published and finally accepted the offer of $130 for 13 pages, which is a little over $2,500 today. So they were like, look, they need stories. We have this. We just want to get it published. Like, let's just do it. So they then signed a contract giving away the copyright to Detective Comics Incorporated, which was the owner of Action Comics, which was standard practice of the day. So they essentially are like, here, here's our character that we've been holding on to for almost a decade. It's yours now. Yeah, you can own all of it. Jerry and Joe's revised Superman would finally make his debut, Action Comics number one, cover date June 1938, actually on the stands April 1938, so just don't want to put that for anyone that's going to be like, hey, that's wrong. Now, the cover shows Superman lifting a car, saving a pedestrian child. It's considered to be the beginning of the superhero genre and is now the most valuable comic book ever. A 9.0 grading of an Action Comics number one in 2014 sold for, how much would you say? This is the first Superman comic, the first printing? Yeah. Uh, $10,000. $3.2 million. What? Yeah. Even if people aren't Superman fans, fa- or, uh, fans of comic book history and stuff, this is such a big moment in the history of comic books and superheroes in general. That's a big deal. Now, in 1939, Superman got his own newspaper comic strip and his own comic book title, which was a first of its kind for a character to have his own title. It was mostly like, you know, action comics, detective comics, you know, mystery comics. So it was just this is the first 
person to have his own like actual comic book. Superman. Yeah, Superman. The public just couldn't get enough, obviously, in 1940. They would finally be able to put a voice to that spandex alien from Krypton when the Adventures of Superman radio program premiered. Oh. It would last until 1951 and run for 2,088 episodes. Target audience was children, and one of the more famous arcs involves Superman defeating the Ku Klux Klan. Wow. Wow. Sixteen episode arc called Clan of the Fiery Cross. This is also the radio show's the first time we hear the famous phrase that's associated with that man of steel. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. So that's a famous thing, huh? That's a pretty big thing. So then in 1941, animation company Fleischer Studios, who were known to uh, for characters like Betty Boop and Popeye, later became famous studios, released 17 theatrical animated shorts. They concluded in 1943. Bud Collier was the voice of Superman on the radio, then also provided the voice for the cartoons. And I'll say this, that intro got a lot more professional sounding. Mm. Faster than a speeding bullet. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Serial films were shorts that would progress the story each week. With all of this supermania, it would only make sense that he would be the first superhero to get his some serial play, right? It would make sense. Well, nope, sorry. First superhero serials were actually lesser known. Mandrake the Magician. Who? Mandrake the Magician. He got his... He played my bar mitzvah. He, he was the first superhero to get his own serial in 1939. Then The Shadow, 1940. Then Captain Marvel, which was later Shazam, not the uh, Brie Larson Captain Marvel, in 1941. Batman in 1943. The Phantom in 1943 as well. And then Captain America in 1944. But then America's favorite superhero got serialized. Superman. Yes, that's Right, Superman finally got a super serial. Now, they had been attempted in 1940, but rights issues held things up, of course. I didn't think they had rights issues back in the 1930s. I have personal rights, and they're not going to be taken away by the government. <laughs> they uh, cast Kirk Allen in the role of Superman. Uh, he'd been, been a working actor up to that point, but hadn't really done anything of acclaim. He had some Broadway little, little background stuff. On Broadway? Yeah. Now, for the flying sections, they made it an animated section, so that's how they did flying so it was like all live action and then when he's flying it's cartoons they didn't want to risk the picture looking cheap with bad flying shots so they decided just to go let's go avant-garde we love avant-garde they filmed kirk allen jumping up cut in the animation and then have him land quote unquote behind a car or something of that size you you think it's gonna look real Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. Kirk, don't worry about this, buddy. Kirk, this is state-of-the-art CG. <laughs> Columbia Pictures released their 15-part serial, and it was another huge financial hit. Superman was bigger than ever. Even theaters that didn't normally show serial films showed this serial film because they knew it would bring money in. And the animated flying was not even a big deal. Here is a, just a little taste in. In the far reaches of space, like a pinpoint at infinity... There once was a tiny blue star. 
spanning the billions of miles that separated this star from the Earth, we discover that it was in reality a planet like our own. This was the ill-fated planet Krypton, which revolved about... Two years later, a sequel serial series, Adam Man versus Superman. Adam Ant? No, Adam Man. No, Adam Man. Oh, A-T-O-M? Yes! There's a guy named Adam Man? Yeah, Kirk Allen returned for the series, and it was the first live appearance of Superman's arch nemesis, Lex Luthor, (gasps) who then was technically playing Atom Man. It was a hit, but not as nearly as big as the first one. Atom Man, I don't think people were into Atom Man. Now, Kirk Allen became too associated with the role and found it hard to get work afterwards because of the association. The studio told him that no one would find him believable as anyone but Superman, and uh, he wouldn't even get credited in the serials because they wanted audiences to believe that the role of Superman was being played by Superman. This guy's getting fucked. Yeah. Uh, Kirk Allen said, playing Superman ruined my acting career, and I was bitter for many years about the whole thing. I couldn't get another job in Hollywood. Fast forward, Kirk Allen didn't really work much, and he got hired to be in the Christopher Reeve Superman movie as Christopher Reeve Uncle. So needing a new Superman, Lippert turned to the hero of this podcast episode. Fred Silverman. Mr. Oh, I wish. Mr. George Reeves. Ah, yes, George Reeves. So George Reeves was born in Woodstock, Iowa. I feel like it's not as cool. Uh, in 1914, born George Kiefer Brewer, uh, he'd end up moving to California with his mom and adopted stepfather. He took the last name, becoming George Basolo at age 13. And to be clear, he adopted the stepfather. Yeah. The stepfather didn't adopt him. He adopted exactly. the stepfather. Exactly. Now, George Basolo didn't have the easiest life. For example, uh, when he returned home from visiting family, his mother told him that his stepfather had committed suicide. Ooh. Turns out they just got divorced. Uh, oh, Jesus. Yeah, George apparently didn't know for several years the man was actually still alive can you imagine hearing that and then one day your dad like knocks on the door uh, it scared the shit out yeah. of me so he, george would go on to study uh, acting at the pasadena playhouse he would be discovered when casting director maxwell arno saw him in a production there arno is famous for discovering Catherine hepburn and humphrey bogart as well ah so this guy this guy you know ha- had a, had a good eye for talent it seems like george had his big break in 1939 when he was cast in the film that would become uh, fairly popular uh he was cast as Stuart Tarleton, one of the twins uh, that was trying to court Scarlett O'Hara in the opening scene of Gone with the Wind. Yes, yeah. yes, he's George, in Gone with the Wind. Yeah, George was one of the first males to have a line on the film, but he's also credited as the other Tarleton twin, Brent Tarleton. Brent, Stuart Tarleton, you handsome old thing. You, oh, no, you're not. I don't mean to say that. I'm mad at you. What have we done, honey? You haven't been near me all day, and I wore this old dress just because I thought you liked it. I was counting on eating barbecue with you two. Well, you are, Scarlett. Of you are, honey. I never can make up my mind which of you two's the handsomest. I was awake all last night trying to figure it out. So after filming, he returned to the Pasadena Playhouse and played the title role in the play Poncho. Do you know that one? Is it about Poncho Villa? I don't know. This led him to getting a contract with Warner Brothers, and those brothers told him that it was time to change that name of his. George Basolo didn't sound like a leading man's name. How about George Reeves? In 1940, he married Eleonora Needles. George's life was a going pretty decent you know getting work as an actor has a new wife it's 1940 it's the beginning of a fresh new decade of promise Mm. the 40s ah 
After starring in some low-budget and uh, B-pictures, including some with uh, Ronald Reagan, but like I said, things were, you know, looking up. He signed with 20th Century Fox, uh, but they let him go after a few films. Uh, he got cast as Hopalong Cassidy's companion for five Westerns. You know, Westerns were popular. Hopalong Cassidy, huh? It's not a very intimidating name, no, Hopalong. Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. Then George signed with another studio, Paramount pictures. He's getting around. He was going to the big ones, you know? Now, he signed to do two films a year for them, and one of those films was 1943's So Proudly We Hail. Now, it was a film about the early days of World War II in the Philippines. Now, that's topical. That Yes, absolutely. Appearing in this film really spoke to George. He decided to put his acting career on hold and enlisted in the Army. He got drafted in 1943. Oh, bye, George. He was assigned to the U.S. Army Air Forces. Boy, George. Yeah. <laughs> While a part of the USA AF, George performed in the Moss Hart play Winged Victory. Do you know this one? I do not. Uh, it was written as a morale booster for troops, and it was also a fundraiser for the American Emergency Relief Fund. The cast also featured, amongst many others, Red Buttons, Mario Lanza, John Forsythe, and Carl Malden. Now, it closed only so the cast could fly to Hollywood to film the movie version. Oh, there's a movie? Yep. This, too, proved to be a huge hit. After filming, there was a national tour, then, of this the show. getting around. 445 shows for over 800,000 people. George was part of all of it. George decided to pick up where he left off after the war. Except for the fact that Hollywood really slowed down productions after the war, believe it or not. They oh, felt really? like it wasn't time to really start putting a lot of money into stuff. So he had to act in a low-budget serial called The Adventures of Sir. Galahad, but at least he was Sir Galahad, so it was the, oh. his adventures. And to make ends meet, he picked up a second job, digging cesspools. Did he really? He dug cesspools. Honey, let me tell you, Hollywood is a cesspool. <laughs> you know that? Now, unhappy with his career and the marriage that was ending, George's marriage was ending, by the way, George left Hollywood for New York. Now, he did some TV anthology shows. You know, those were big at the time. Oh, I love those. A little bit of radio. So all this George talk leads us back to where we need to get to. Superman. So after Adam Man versus Superman, Superman and the Adam Man serial was released in 1950, plans were to start to develop a television series based on Superman. They even brought in Whitney Ellsworth, who was a DC editor, to write the pilot. I thought that was kind of cool, and he actually would stay with the show the whole time. To make sure the character could still draw an audience, they decided they should make a Superman film, just to kind of get an idea. It was also kind of the sort of the, the backdoor pilot, if you yes. will. Because I think it was only like 51 minutes, so it wasn't like a full feature length. Luckily for them, they already had their Superman and Kirk Allen. But, like I said, Kirk Allen did not uh, like that role, and he turned him down. I'm sure they weren't expecting him to turn down that role, so they kind of had to go into scramble mode. Then in June 1991, they remembered they had this one actor who was six foot, also happened to do some boxing in his past. He barrel-chested Reeves, George Reeves. That's Sir Galahad to you, friend. Now, while George was initially reluctant to take the role, a lot of actors felt that being on television was unimportant and oh, they was, thought that yeah. no one would see them on it which now it's like we're in the golden age but like they were like no 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 that's beneath them. that's beneath them exactly thank you but then he still took it and i think he probably realized it beat digging cesspools in the long run let me tell you being on a television show that is digging a cesspool immediately after filming that long 12-day shoot they 
went straight into shooting the first season of Adventures of Superman. They figured, you know, we got the sets and costumes. <laughs> Let's not waste it. By this point, George was an alcoholic. Oh, George. Yeah. Phyllis Coates, who was the woman who played Lois Lane, recalled in an interview the first day of shooting that they had. She, she said vomited that, on me. <laughs> no, but he said that George invited her into his dressing room, made them both a martini, proposed a toast, and he said, well, Phyllis, welcome to the bottom of the barrel. Oh, my God. First Why day. Why is he so angry? Yeah. Uh, neither of them wanted to do television, but they both needed the work, so they were like, "Well, bit the paycheck." And just a reminder, if I if I can, yeah. really quickly, residuals were not a thing. Oh, not at all. Which comes in later. So these people were literally it was just for a paycheck. Yeah. There was no long term. Yeah. Around this time, George had a new lady in his life. He was still kind of fresh from his divorce. He was getting back out there. You know, go George. You know, we we, we appreciate that. Now that lady was Tony Mannix. Okay. Tony Mannix was eight years older than George. Ah, cool. Meow. Tony was a former Ziegfeld Follies dancer. Oh! Yep, and she was known in Hollywood. People knew who she was. See, Tony Mannix was married to famous Hollywood fixer and vice president of MGM, Eddie Mannix. So when you say fixer... Eddie Mannix was the guy at MGM who would... Turn to, uh, you know, he would be the one that arranged a marriage between an actor and an actress who just couldn't find the right person. Love is hard. Love is hard. You know, if, you know, one actor was accused of being gay and there was an actress There's no that such was a thing lesbian, as, that's he not would true. be the matchmaker that they need to find them people. He arranged for starlets not to get pregnant after all. Oh my gosh, what you a were surprise. pregnant. No, I you weren't. not pregnant anymore. He was known for paying off a person who just got hit by an A-lister's Rolls Royce. He had a major hand in running MGM in the, the this 30s through the 50s. This is a big fucking 50s. job. Yeah, as general manager and then VP. It was Hollywood. And considering Eddie and Tony's relationship started out as a fair, by the way, Tony was originally Eddie's mistress. Oh, and Eddie. even after marriage, affairs continued. Eddie didn't really care about George and Tony's buddy love affair because Eddie had his own side piece. He didn't care. Got it. As long as Tony was happy, he lo- it, it truly seems like he loved his wife, and it was one of those things that he knew what kept him happy. And- okay, so let me see if I got this right. Eddie and Tony are a married couple. Mm-hmm. Tony is now having an affair with George Reeves. Mm-hmm. George is single now at this time, right? He's divorced Correct. his wife. Okay. Eddie is like, that's okay if she wants to fuck around, because I fuck around too. So it's an open marriage. Exactly. Okay, thank you. They finished filming the first season of Adventures of Superman. They filmed the first season over 13 weeks. So that was a, got a little bit longer than the movie, 12 days of 13 weeks. They filmed 26 episodes and shot scenes for different episodes in the same day. That way they could utilize you know, the same sets, save sure. some money on time. Actors would wear the same costumes continuity you know that's a good way to get that at least two half hour shows were produced every six days episodes cost about fifteen thousand dollars to produce and actors were paid two hundred dollars per episode and once they were done filming those episodes kind of just sat there unaired they weren't picked up by anything and it would be another year before they got to go on air and it was only because they were picked up by a sponsor which was kellogg's who sponsored the radio show at the time oh they were waiting for a sponsor yeah so they so the show finally premiered on september 19th 1952 a year after they filmed it because they were waiting for kellogg or sponsor at all oh my god so they made all these episodes Mm -hmm. just sitting there wow yeah Yeah, so that's interesting i did not know that faster than a speeding bullet More powerful than a locomotive. 
able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Yes, it's Superman! This baby took off. People loved Superman. The, the series could probably leap a tall building in a single bound, Rob. <laughs> at least two bounds. Wow. Seriously, at least two bounds. This is a TV show I'm talking about. Now, the special effects were super limited. Superman crashed through walls, bent gun barrels, had bullets bounce off his chest. They'd reuse the same flying sequences, sometimes stretched them out if they needed uh, the episode to get a little, bit, a little bit longer. They need a little bit longer. And they used actual footage of what looked like flying this time, though. It wasn't cartoons. Okay. So, uh, it got better over time, obviously. But in the early season, you can see his legs flattened, laying on something, and then they kind of build something for him to you know lay into and stuff all the special effects and you know the jumping and stuff didn't matter to fans superman was on tv yes and that was blowing people's minds and the cast couldn't believe that it became such a hit mostly george who at this point i wouldn't describe necessarily as an optimist in his life he doesn't sound like george it. was not the happiest guy jack larson who played jimmy olsen said that when he first met george he told him that he enjoyed george's performance and so proudly we hail which was the world war ii yeah. film george told jack that if mark sandwich hadn't died he wouldn't have to pee in this monkey suit at least the success of the show put a little wind in his cape for the time being now, ABC Network was struggling at the time, so they bought the show to be broadcast nationally, which only meant more fans. We can either buy Superman or we can buy more lettuce. <laughs> Stupid. Uh, you're Superman. Oh, now, the contracts that actors signed were pretty restrictive. They didn't really have a chance to take other lengthy jobs, and the show wasn't shooting because their contract had a 30-day clause, which meant producers could call them at any time and tell them, well, we start in 30 days. Oof. Still, George was able to get small acting roles in a couple of films, uncredited role from here to eternity in an episode of another TV anthology but even after only one season George started to realize that he was becoming associated with the role of Superman and people didn't want to cast Superman in a drama they started filming the second season they recast Lois Lane due to a scheduling conflict now Noelle Neal returned she was in the serials she came in to replace Phyllis Coates old George's drinking buddy oh <laughs> she no was this isn't going good yeah sorry uh, now since the show was a hit, the advertiser Kellogg's thought it would be a great idea to have some of the cast do some commercial tie-ins. They asked all three male leads to appear in these commercials. Noel Neal was never asked to appear in one, though. You see, sponsors were afraid that having Lois Lane and Clark Kent eating breakfast together would be too suggestive. Why can't they be at a restaurant? Suggestive, Rob, because they're not married. George would make some extra money doing personal appearances as Superman, which I'm sure he just loved doing. But he even started to realize the role model that he was for children who yes. tuned in. And he actually enjoyed this fact. And he even decided to not smoke cigarettes when he was around those young whippersnappers. And apparently he stopped smoking in, in general. Look at him providing a good example <laughs> now, to the children. As, as, much, as much as he enjoyed his status among children, he really hoped that he had some adult fans. He hoped some grown-ups enjoyed the show. Mostly casting directors and producers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. George even appeared in character in a short film film for the U.S. Department of Treasury in 1954. That's right. Little kitties could learn all about the importance of purchasing savings bonds in Stamp Day for Superman. Short synopsis, Superman stops a burglar. Burglar says he turned to life of crime because he never bothered to save his money. <laughs> I know that feeling. Hi, boys and gals. There can only be one Superman, of course. 
you ever think about some of the super things that you can do for yourself? Well, like saving up the money for your own vacation. Or uh, for that new bike that you wanted so much. Well, all you have to do is just put away part of your allowance or your odd job money and put it in United States saving stamps at school. Those dimes, quarters, and dollars add up mighty fast, especially when you buy them every week on stamp day. Well, the first thing you know, you'll have enough for a savings bond, just like Dad buys for the payroll savings at work. And from then on, the sky's the limit. Take it from Superman. Your mom and dad will be plenty proud of you if you're learning to save regularly. And the teachers are on your... When not filming, George worked very closely to raise money to fight myasthenia gravis, which is a neuromuscular disease that affects muscles on the face. He was even the president of the foundation. Did he know somebody that had it? I couldn't find anything on, on it, but this was a very important cause to him. It was also important to... Tony Mannix. Remember her? Yeah. Oh, she's still around. Don't you worry, Miss Tony Mannix. Mrs. Tony Mannix, I should say. Now, after two seasons were complete, George wanted to move on. He didn't like that what he was getting paid. You know, he felt like the character was one dimensional. He was 40 at this time. He wanted to move on to the next chapter of his career. I'm 40. Yeah. Oh, boy. Now, producers of the show started to look for a new Kryptonian, even recording Mr. Kirk Allen, star of the serials. Well, George wanted to do something different. He started his own production company and conceived and wrote a pilot for a TV adventure series called Port of Entry. It'll be shot in Hawaii and Mexico. How are you paying for this, George? Well, stamps. <laughs> now, this was a big step for someone that only a few years prior had an intense disdain for television. You know what I mean? Like, he now is conceiving a pilot, creating a production company for this, and only a couple years prior, he was saying this is the bottom of the barrel doing television. So he definitely realized that television, oh, he's getting out there. Now, production couldn't even begin on Port of Entry. Superman producers called him and offered him a raise. It was reported that he was making $5,000 a week. Wow. Which is around $50,000 today. I also read $2,500 a week, but either way, it was, either way, he's doing it good. was a big jump up from uh, the initial 250 that he was making. Now, beginning in 1954 for season three, Adventures of Superman would be filmed in color. Now, mind you, in 1954, color televisions were an anomaly. Like, no one had them. It would be another decade and couple years before they were become like common in houses. But Kellogg's had the idea to film in color and they were the money. So color it was. So yeah, okay. color also meant that George would finally wear the actual colors of Superman's trademark outfit because it a uh, black and white, they it wasn't the red, uh yellow and blue that we know. It was brown for the red, gray for blue and white for yellow because that's what made it pop better in the black and white. Oh, I didn't know that. The first two black and white seasons got a lot of complaints from parents about the show being too violent for kids to watch. So with the new color format, it came a lighter, brighter episodes for viewers. Oh, boy. I'm sure that made George just so happy. <laughs> ABC still only broadcast in black and white, and the first syndication prints were still black and white. And it wasn't until 1965, 11 years after initial airing, the color versions were made available for syndication. Mm. So it took 11 years, but they still were at the forefront. And this was probably one of the first television series to be filmed in color, which is just crazy to think at the time. It was such Jeez. an anomaly. But it's a great one to do, even though people weren't seeing it, because you had the color of Superman's oh, outfits and stuff, and it wasn't just like the gray overcoats and everything else. So no, I think that's actually a pretty smart idea to keep it vibrant. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the time has come. Yes. This was a thing is going off the air. What? April Fool's. Hooray! <laughs> you made my heart uh, leap faster than a slammer hitting a pog. No, no, no. Don't worry, folks. We ain't going nowhere. And in order to ensure that, friends, we need your help. Our podcast is entirely self-produced, and we need your help. Now, if you can, our little Easter eggs, head on over to Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. And search for This Was a Thing. And then you can set a monthly donation, even a dollar a month helps us your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing which our families are still trying to figure out have a great june it's april you little fool really dude like i kind of i said earlier george seemed like he was a, a drinker i i would assume you know, so a real drinker original lois phyllis coates who i said you know had that early drink one day said every day at four o'clock george had an open bar in his dressing room on set and nobody could stop him now this caused major issues with the production manager who despised drinking apparently shooting would often come to a complete halt because george and his bottle were just you know off doing their own thing george and his bottle just didn't care and how could they? Apparently he had a drinking companion with him on set most of the times, keeping up with him drink for drink. Tony Mannix. Tony Mannix oh. was there. You know, big wig fixer. fixer. Yep. You know, she's doing her own thing. Eddie Mannix didn't mind. He did not care. He was off doing his own gals. He was having a nice time. Fixing things. And it's said that Eddie Mannix had some ties to the mob. Okay. Now, George was known to host parties and card games at his house on Benedict Canyon Road. These parties would become marathons and go to the wee hours of the morning. It's a party animal. Party animal. In 1956, George was given a pretty good role in the Disney film Westward Ho, the, the film Westward Ho the Wagons. Thank you. Yeah. Starring a Mr. Fess Parker. Hey, Fess Parker, David Crockett. Exactly. Now, George got to wear a beard and a mustache, so there's no way people would even recognize now him as Superman. that's acting. Exactly. Exactly. George, Noel Neal, and some of his other actor buddies and some musicians would tour doing public appearances from 1957 onward. First half of the show was Superman sketch. Second half was the show of the show was George out of costume singing songs and playing guitar. Needing money, obviously, George then did wrestling exhibitions in character. What? Yeah. This he was, would wrestle people? He would wrestle people in character, and this was a real What's this low... Andy Kaufman shit? Yeah, I know, right? But this was obviously a real low point for the man. What would be the final episode of Adventures of Superman aired on April 28th, 1958? They had produced 104 episodes in six years. So they got it pretty good. They could, I think that's syndication. Now, in 1958 interview for the Evening Star titled, No Work for Superman, George replied that he took the role because... I was hungry. He said the auditions were rough ever since donning the cape. The producers wouldn't give me a job. They'd take one look at me and say it was impossible. Because you're always going to think of Superman. Yep. Now, also in 1958, George broke things off with Tony Mannix. With Tony and that gosh darn cape off his back, things seemed like they should start to be looking up, right? Yes, absolutely. So the reason for breaking things off with Tony was the fact that George has actually gotten involved with someone new. He got engaged to a young New York Society gal named Leonore Lemon. Now, they had hardly dated a year before the engagement, but George was smitten. She apparently had a reputation, though, of being a troublemaker. Uh-oh, Lenora. At one point, uh, she had been banned from performing at many of Manhattan's clubs because she was just such a rabble-rouser. Oh, uh, ma'am, calm down. And even though it was canceled, The Adventures of Superman was proving to still be popular in reruns, so they decided that... 
a year was long enough, time to revive it. It's like just nowadays, everything's getting revived. But by mid-1959, contracts had been negotiated, costumes had been fit, 26 new episodes would go into production. So George, even though he didn't want to be Superman again, he needed the money, and so he was like, okay, I'll do another season. He was about to get married to the plan was to marry Lenore on June 19, 1959. The honeymoon would be in Tijuana. Then in July, George would go to Australia for a stage tour as Superman. Not ideal, but at least he can pad his bank account. Now, I should mention that with the engagement announcement, Tony Mannix was not the happiest person in the world, even though she was married. So she's pissed. She's pissed. Like, her and George were never Facebook official per se, Mm -hmm. but that didn't fucking matter. Because George was Tony's. Now, something else that was technically Tony's was the house that George lived in. You see, Tony bought George that house on Benedict Cam- uh, Canyon. What? For $12,000. Yeah, so George's nice house. Her husband had no problem with this. No problem. Tony wasn't pleased that the house that she bought for George now has Lenore Lemon about to move into that house. I get that. Now, one of the reasons George was struggling besides filming being over was also was that Tony was very gracious to him with money and he was getting all kinds of money from Eddie for Tony so he can fund Tony's lavish lifestyle. So Eddie was giving money to George so George could keep Tony happy, if that makes sense. So Eddie Eddie was like, hey, George, here's $10,000. Yeah. Go spend it on my wife yep. and get her out of my hair. Yeah, and make sure, just make sure she's happy and treat her, treat her nice. So rumor has it that George and Tony made a pact to marry if Tony's husband Eddie ever died. Okay. Tony was not happy that Lenore was making George break this pact. George then would receive tons of phone calls to his house late at night. There'd be silence on the other line. Then there'd be threatening voices. His schnauzer Sam got kidnapped, no. which really pissed me off. Yeah, that got that. Did, made did me Sam angry. come back? I, I didn't see. Now any I'm resolution. not happy. He got into a pretty bad car accident on April eighth. Then his Jaguar, the car, not the cat, lost control and smashed into a cement pillar near his house on Benedict Canyon. He walked away from the only injuries to his head and one to his hand, but they were bad enough that he needed powerful painkillers because he still a car accident into a cement mm-hmm. pillar. Then after the accident, George was told by his mechanic that the brake fluid in George's Jaguar had been drained something that was out of character considering george took very good care of his car i guess he loved that jaguar needless to say all of these annoying things happening was wearing thin on miss lenore lemon leonore lemon the fiance the fiance things were supposed to be finally settling down for the man he would he would end up filing a restraining order on tony shortly after so he fires a restraining order on tony Tony. manic yeah so okay now we are going to get to george's final moments oh no i'm gonna first present the facts as they were laid out by the police okay then i'll go over some theories so it was around the time the clock strikes midnight on june 16th 1959 three days before the wedding three days before george and leonor are about to take place in holy matrimony george and leonor had been at dinner and just got and got home late they were joined at dinner by robert corden who was a writer he was staying at their house writing his next project which was a biography on prizefighter archie manning now george and archie were or archie moore i'm sorry archie moore george and archie were scheduled to fight in the celebrity boxing match later that year okay so there's, you know, there's that connection. Okay. Uh, Corden said that Lenore was in quite a mood 
at dinner, very combative, causing a scene at the restaurant. Her anger followed back to the house, so she was angry when we got to the house. Around 1 a.m., their neighbor, Carol Van Ronkel, showed up out of the blue with her mister, which is the male version of a mistress, William Bliss. Okay. Van Ronkel was married to someone else, but her husband was out of town, so they they came over around 1 a.m. Well, a late night isn't an excuse to have a party end to some, so that included everyone but George. So he was tired, he was grumpy, he decided just to go to bed. Around 1.15 or so, George came downstairs to tell the rest of them to keep it down. Come on, keep it down. Trying to sleep there. Now, the rest of them were being loud and pretty, you know, they were pretty lit at this point. Lenore was not pleased with how her fiancé handled the situation. And now it was reported by police that as, as George angrily made his way back upstairs, Lenore said to the other guests, quote, He's probably going to shoot himself. Then a noise was heard upstairs. Lenore continued, he's opening the drawer to get his gun. Then a loud bang and a gunshot from upstairs. That was the gunshot. Then in a macabre form, Lenore then said, see there, I told you so. Then it took 45 minutes for the rest of the house guests to call the police. Police arrive around 2 a.m. Lenore and co. are noticeably drunk and hardly coherent and they can't really help out. When the police and coroner's investigation was completed, it was ruled a suicide. The police report stated that he was, quote, depressed because he couldn't get the parts he wanted. Now, his depression, alcoholism, and the painkillers from the accident that he was in were in him. And it was a tragic tale, but one that seemed to be accepted by the general public. Okay. That he was just sad, drunk, had painkillers. So uh, just a mixture. Yeah. But when some of the other facts came out and some people started giving opinions, the story started to fall apart as if it was hit by a ton of kryptonite. Now, that was delivery. Now, that was, that was, you hear that? That's goddamn good acting. So let's talk about the crime scene. The crime scene was not treated well. There was no photos taken, and they hardly did a search, and they didn't even dust for prints, which is crazy to me because I feel like dusting for prints is like the technology of the time. So you'd think that they would be like, maybe the one thing that I know we do, we should do. But they're just buying it as a suicide. Yeah. So they're walking in saying it's a suicide. Exactly. Period. Yeah. So why would you dust for prints? Yeah. So the, okay. there wasn't an autopsy done initially and his body was embalmed shortly after his death. So mm-hmm. leaving the opportunity for unaffected tests to put. So he was cremated? Uh, no, he was embalmed. Oh, embalmed. Yeah, embalmed. So another thing that were, was off were the ballistics. So George passed from a bullet to the head. Mm-hmm. But very oddly, he had no burn marks on his hand or his face. And powder burns from a gunshot at that range would be left. So the gun then obviously is not being fired at close. Well, that's... That's what that's what's odd about this is what I'm trying to say. If you had put a gun to your head and if you had there pulled the trigger, be. you would have burn marks yes. on your head as well as your fingers. Yes. Okay. And they also found three bullet holes in the bedroom that were all from George's Luger pistol. And the bullet that struck his lethal blow to George ended up in the ceiling. Then the shell casing was found under his body. And then the other two holes were in the floor, yet all the guests had agreed that they only heard one shot. So the bullet that killed him is not in his body. It's in the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And the shell casing shot out of the side of the gun and fell under him. And there's two other bullet holes in the room. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, I only heard one shot. Correct. And so they found George's Luger at his feet. And George was also completely naked. And George wasn't naked when he came downstairs in a huff. And there were no signs of a struggle. 
And it was determined that George's blood alcohol level was 0.27. Is that? Well, 0.08 is the legal limit. So, I mean, it was almost three times. So he's Over three times. Yeah. Over three times what nowadays legal limit is. And on painkillers. Yeah. And on painkillers. Exactly. So people in Hollywood never believed the suicide. Some people just wouldn't believe it. Friends and former cast members agreed that, yes, he was he was depressed, but he was all set to film more Superman. So he was able to find work, even though it was Superman. But this time it was he was getting another nice raise and he'd be able to direct more episodes. And that was something that he had done towards the end of the run. He was directing episodes. So he was getting to do a little bit more than for the show than just be Superman and Clark Kent. He also had been working on a science fiction film that he was trying to get made called Return to Earth. George would direct that, and his friend Sidney Field would write it from the Pasadena Playhouse. And Phyllis Coates, who was Lois Lane in season one, his drinking buddy would star. A lot of things from the crime scene didn't make sense from a logistical perspective. The autopsy report states that George placed the pistol to his right temple and pulled the trigger, dying instantly. He falls backwards on the mattress, feet hung over the mattress, Luger at his feet. That's what the report says. But if the bullet was found in the ceiling, which would mean that George contorted his head in some kind of a way that was tilted to the ceiling, something else that was odd was that for George to have committed suicide, he would have had to use his right hand to pull the trigger, and that would have been hard to do because he had injured his right hand in that car crash. Okay. There was no gunshot residue. Even if the mark wasn't at point-blank range, common in suicides, it still would have left some kind of a mark. So even point if it wasn't at point blank, something would have been left. There was also the shell casing that was found underneath him, which is odd. A Luger usually ejects the shell from its right side. George would have had to have been in a very odd body position when he pulled the trigger for the bullet to end up underneath him. And he also didn't have burn marks on his back. If he were to fall on a freshly ejected shell casing, it would have burned him. Yes. It would have been hot enough where it would have yeah. burned him. And those extra two bullet holes, only one shot was heard. Multiple gunshot suicides are a rare occurrence. Having, you know, unless you're just figuring out how to shoot the gun the first two times. So either George had target practice in his bedroom before this night or those bullet holes came from someone else. Mm -hmm. And there were two ladies that people suspected could be behind this, even if they weren't the ones pulling the trigger. I called this section... Leonore Lemonated. Lemonated. George and Leonore's romance was a quick whirlwind of a relationship. Things moved pretty quickly. They were known to get testy with each other, and George was deep into his alcoholism by this point. But Leonore was no teetotaler, I can tell you that much, because she could drink this Leonore. Leonore Lemon made quite a name for herself in New York's social circles. She was known for her hard drinking and making scenes. She was the first woman ever thrown out of the Stork Club for fist fighting. Through her exploits, it's said that she became pretty friendly with some fellas in the mob in New York in her time there. She had been married before, twice, both times said to have been married for money, a gold digger, some would say. Now, she was in a relationship with George. He's a TV star, so he had to have money, right? You know, from Uh an outsider's perspective. Well, I think Lenore was kind of surprised to find out that the money wasn't there, especially now that the show had been off the air for a few years and he wasn't getting that Mannix money to fill up his pockets. Mm -hmm. So Leonora was not, I'm sure when they met, he was still getting a little Mannix money. And now he's like, I'm broke. Yeah, now he's broke. 
Speaking of Tony, Richard Condon, who was at the dinner with George Leonor that night, said that his dinner partners had a spat during the meal. It was due to suspicions that Leonor had, suspicions that George had been talking to Tony. Tony, Tony, again. So at dinner, she says, I know you're cheating on me Mm -hmm. with Tony. I know you're talking to her. Yep. And that. And this is in public. No, you know, that was in public, and that, in public. And that was the argument that followed them back to the house, uh-huh. apparently, was that he was talking to Tony. Well, a few years after the incident, William Bliss, who was the neighbor's boyfriend, uh, told a friend that after they heard a gunshot, Leonor ran down the stairs saying, tell them I was down here. Tell them I was down here. So it seems like in that 45 minutes that they waited to call the police, they were trying to figure out the story that they were going to tell. Everyone was at the house that night told police Leonore was downstairs at the time of the gunshot. But now with William Bliss admitting that Leonore had been upstairs, it makes more sense. Why would it take them so long? Why did they wait so long to call the police? Because they had to figure it all out. So some speculate that Leonore followed George upstairs. They argued. He threatened to end things. She pulled out a gun. They struggled over it. Mm -hmm. And then she accidentally shot him. Mm -hmm. So... Was it Lenore Lemon who could have shot George during a heated, drunken argument? Whether if ac- on accident or on purpose, did her short fuse have anything to do with George's early death? Leonora was able to return to the house shortly afterwards, and since it wasn't being treated like a crime scene, she decided to do a little laundry. There's blood all over those sheets! So she obviously decided that the sheets would uh, be a good thing to get washed. She washed the sheets. She uh-huh. went back and washed the sheets. Well, technically, it's not evidence because it's a suicide. Exactly. Well, and, and since she was home, she might as well grab those $4,000 in traveler's checks, oh, right? Oh, no. And stamps from the kids. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, well, those sheets were washed. Traveler's checks were in hand. Lenore left L.A. and went right back to New York City, never to come back. Not even for George's funeral. Okay. Leonore Lemon aided, possibly, in George's death. Now, these next theories... I have dubbed Mannix Depression. We have Lemonade and Mannix Depression. Exactly. Okay, I'm here. Tony Mannix. Poor, poor, poor Tony Mannix. The owner of a broken heart. And that heartbreak was intense, considering it was Superman that broke that heart. The guy is strong, folks. Real strong. Well, Tony was so upset at George for breaking things off and then going off and getting engaged. It started to affect Tony's marriage. The end of her affair really started to get to her husband, Eddie, because, sure, he had his own thing, he, he, he had his girlfriend, but he wanted Tony to be happy in the long run. Uh-huh. And George hurting Tony means Tony's hurt, which means Eddie is hurt. And apparently, he, he, he enjoyed George. He, he apparently liked the guy. But Tony being sad was affecting Eddie's other relationships. Eddie was known as the fixer of Hollywood. Was he responsible for fixing his wife's problems? Did Tony have it arranged? Famous mobster Mickey Cohen once said that Tony Mannix, Eddie's wife, was the only person in Hollywood that had any balls. So Tony Mannix is known around Hollywood. Now, Tony was originally Eddie's side gal, like I said. Uh, That was until Eddie's first wife mysteriously died. Oh, no. That gave Eddie and Tony the opportunity to get married, and they loved each other so much that, like I said, their open relationship was known to pretty much everyone in town. Oh, boy. Eddie Mannix knew how to get things done. He knew how to take care of situations that were not good. Eddie was so powerful that... After he had done his fixing, the star would then do anything for Eddie. 
that Eddie wanted. He had all the control of these stars then. Because, mind you, Eddie wasn't the one going around and getting his hands dirty all the time. He had underlings, but he had the connections to the mob. The guy got his start in the amusement park business in New Jersey, for God's sakes. That's a pretty dangerous business. Yeah, Eddie was. Yeah, Eddie knew how to get things done, and with his wife, Tony, being distraught as ever, he may have had to do what he did best. Get someone to take care of the problem. Mm-hmm. Something else that's odd, Phyllis Cote who is the original Lois Lane, got a call from a frantic Tony Mannix early in the morning, the same morning that George died. Tony told Phyllis that George had been murdered, and this was before the news came out. And it was always strange to Phyllis that she got that call from Tony. Did Mannix depression cause her husband to arrange for George's death? Okay. And then, of course, the final theory is... The one that police came to, that George just reached the lowest point of his sadness and that he felt that there was no turning back. That even with the guaranteed Superman work coming up, it was still Superman, a role that he hated so much that it said that after each season was done being filmed, he gladly took the costumes to burn them. So George's mother also couldn't accept that her son would do something like this. She went as far as to hire famed Hollywood lawyer Jerry Geisler uh, to petition for the case to be reopened and investigated as a homicide. Geisler had represented people like Charlie Chaplin, Busby Berkeley. So a second autopsy was done, though, but they reached the same conclusion George had done it himself. Now, Jack Larson, who played Jimmy Olsen, was convinced that George committed suicide. This is the co-star. Yeah, the co-star. Exactly. Jack Larson said that after George's death, he went with Tony to the house. Moral support for her. I, you know, I think he knew her from yeah. her being on the set. Now, this is from an L.A. Times story in 2006 that covered the mystery. Leaving the house that day, Larson and Tony Mannix got into her Cadillac convertible. The car's top was down, and he was in the passenger seat. She didn't say anything for quite a while. We sat there. Then she leaned back with her head towards the sky and said, I never would have believed my love affair would have ended in tragedy. Okay. Lenore Lemon would never get back to the upper levels of society that she was once part of. She became a major alcoholic and would often give contradictory stories of what happened that night, and she died alone in 1989 in her apartment. Tony and Eddie Mannix stayed married until uh, Eddie's death in 1963. She never remarried, had any children. She developed Alzheimer's in her 70s. Towards the end of her life, Beverly Hills publicist Edward Losey became friends with Tony, and he said that on her deathbed, while holding the hands of him and her priest, she made a final confession. She admitted that she and Eddie arranged for George to be killed. Now, after the break, you can tell me what you think happened. I know what happened. Spooky. This was a thing. This was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Next actor, please. Uh, Hello, who are you? Hi, I will be reading for the role of Hamlet. You look awfully familiar. What's your name? Nope. Never seen me before. I'm a newbie to theater. What is your name, though? Reorge. Reorge? Wait, are you a Swede? Reorge what? Jeeves. Reorge Jeeves? Definitely a Swede. (laughs) Yes, sir. It was originally Reorge Michael Jeeves, but there was already someone with that name in the Union. But I'm sure I've seen you before. Wait... Take off your glasses. I, I I can't. I can't see without them. There aren't any lenses in them. Take off your glasses. Fine. Oh, my God. You're George Reeves. I thought you were dead. Mr. DeMille, please. I had to be a real actor again, so I faked my own death. 
Now, with these glasses, no one can tell it's me, George Reeves. Superman is dead, and so is George Reeves, but George Reeves is alive and well, and standing in front of you now in a suit and a tie and a red cape, asking for a chance to be a real actor. Now, is it George Jeeves or George Meeves? Well, it depends on what union I'm in. Agva, there was, it's a whole long story. All right, just go ahead, please. <clears throat> Thank you. To be or not to be, that is the question. Oh, boy, next. Oh, well, thank you for your time. Is there a payphone? Need to change into your outfit? No, <laughs> no, I, I need to call Manny and say I can take his shift at McDonald's. Just go ask my secretary. Uh, can I also borrow a nickel? Uh, you don't need a nickel to call from my secretary, so if this is for something outside of the office, I'm not well, going to be able to give you a like nickel. a cup of coffee. Just grab a cup of coffee on the way out, too. Thank you so much, Mr. DeMille. It's great seeing you again. Reorge. Yes. Until next time. Until next time, Mr. DeMille. Up, up, and away! Oh, God. Oh, boy. Okay, so it was, um, I didn't know you were on a ground floor. I'm sorry. I stepped on your begonias. Thank you. This was a sketch. What do you think? I, th okay, so I'll, I'll work backwards. I don't think he killed himself. I think that's number one. I don't yeah. think this guy killed himself. Number two, I think this publicist is lying. She's got dementia. Yeah. Second of all, he's a publicist. Yeah. He gets the deathbed confession. Suddenly he waits to tell this. That makes no sense. I think he's trying to he's trying to get money. Okay. I think it's exactly what happened. They're downstairs. They're having the party. He wants to sleep. He says, he comes down. He says, everyone shut the fuck up. He goes back up. He starts undressing for bed. She's like, I can't take this any. You fucking, you fucking humiliated me. You embarrassed me. She goes upstairs. He's naked. They start arguing. They start yelling at one another. She grabs the gun. He grabs it to get it away from her. While in the struggle, one shot, two shot on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. Third shot hits him in the head. Oh my God, I killed him. I don't know what to do. She runs downstairs. She, goes, she tells them, I killed him. I don't know what to do. Now we're all in this together. The 45 minutes, I think, is them coming up with a story. Here's what I'm curious about. Mm -hmm. I think the way the woman, I, I think the, the way the woman got the information. Tony Mannix. I bet you anything, her husband had people on the payroll, and I bet you they knew what was going on. Somebody called and was like, hey, listen, they killed George Reeves. Oh, yeah. Probably, that's, yeah. I, I think that's how she knows ahead yeah, of everybody. That's, yeah. Here's what I would love to have known. What was she wearing at dinner, and what was she wearing when the cops came? Did she get blood on her, did, like, is there, that's what I'm curious about. Yeah. Like, those are my questions. What was she wearing? And why did it take 45 minutes? Why did they hear one shot, but they didn't hear the two other shots? Yeah. Here's another theory that I, that could possibly happen. I don't know if this would be accurate. She kills him. She doesn't know what to do. So she calls Tony. She calls Eddie, this woman. And it's somehow maybe she's telling, like, they're going to get involved. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it might come out that he's, he was having an affair with so maybe maybe they're the ones who get the cops involved. I think the cops knew what something had gone wrong, and I think they were paid off. What I'm wondering is, is like the women in the house, like who had money to maybe pay a cop off, and they go, "Yeah, it was a suicide." That's the thing that's the most plausible to me. And they didn't treat it like a crime scene. Yeah, I don't think they treat it like a crime scene because somebody told them not to treat it like a crime scene. Yeah, I think that's it. Things could have been gotten back to Tony Mannix then, if anything. I don't know. Even if she wasn't responsible for it, her name could have been brought up, and I'm sure Eddie Mannix. The last thing the fixer of Hollywood wants is his wife to have to be involved in. Yeah, I would not be surprised if they were involved in some way, but I don't think they had any prior knowledge no. of, nor do I think they pulled the trigger. Yeah. It's that 45-minute window. Yeah, it's exactly. That's the most, that's the sketchiest part. 
And it, they said that it was like because they were too drunk. They heard a gunshot. Yeah, exactly. And they weren't confused. She apparently admitted that's a gunshot. Yeah. Unless he was known for, was he known for like firing off a pistol when he got angry? Wasn't it Elvis who like used to shoot at objects? Uh, Elvis would shoot if anytime Robert Goulet came on the television, he would shoot the television. Is that true? Yes. He hated Robert Goulet. Why? If ever I would leave you. Yeah, but Elvis would shoot the television set. Now look here, King. Here, boy. Here, King. <laughs> here, boy. Hi, I'm kidding. Uh, actually, I'm Bob Goulet. And I played King Arthur in the revival. So thank you so much for telling me all of this. I did not realize. I knew he had died and I knew it was mysterious, but- this is incredible to me. And I'll say this. George Reeves was the first television Superman. Kirk Allen became before him. But I would say that George Reeves really left his mark. Speaking yes. of Mark. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. This is a this was a quiz. With Mark Schroeder. So were you? A, are you a superhero guy, Mark? Big superhero guy. I know this story from what Hollywood Land, right? Hollywood Isn't that Land. the movie yep. that, that fictionalized exactly. this or whatever? And and I don't know. What do you? What do you guys think? I think he was killed. Yeah, I, I think, think he, he was, was killed. killed. I don't think he killed himself. I mean, it's sad. no matter what happened, no matter what the truth is, which we may never know. It's very sad. Poor, poor, poor George George Reeves. Yes, poor George Reeves. I mean, the road to Hollywood sign. It's paved with the tragic stories of Georges <laughs> uh, uh, who have uh -oh. sought fame and fortune. Uh -oh. Some succeeded, some failed, but all will be remembered. Mm. Mm. Yes. Today, we're going to dive right in. We're going to feast on some of the deliciously famous Georges in a little game called Let's Gorge on George. Ooh. Okay. I did that once. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, well, boy. Is this the same game? Yeah. I should go to the bathroom beforehand. Oh, geez, Louis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, this game- Tell me about Georges. You guys are going to be competing against each other in separate speed rounds here. You're going to be taking turns. I'll ask each of you seven clues of famous Georges. you mm -hmm. got to answer or you got to pass as quickly oh, as you can. At the end of these rounds, the person with the most right answers will be crowned King George. Oh, okay. The loser will be crowned George Costanza. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. okay with yeah. that. Yeah, so I figured you guys Believe would never. Believe not, George yeah. is at home. Where could I be? All right, I've got items for both of you. Who went first last time? Who goes first this time? I doubt we recall, but let's flip a coin. There it is. It's up. It's flipping. It's flipping. It's still flipping. There Call it's it. down. Uh, heads. Ooh, tails. Okay, you go first. Okay, Rob, here we go. <laughs> that backfired. Yes. 80s music icon George Allen O'Dowd is better known as this. George Michael. Wrong. In 2013, George Clooney founded a brand of this type of liquor. Uh, uh, Kahlua. No, not Kahlua. Whiskey. Whiskey. Incorrect. This literary character was created by Hans Augusto and Margaret Ray, a husband and wife team that fled Nazi-occupied Paris in 1940. Curious George. Correct. This former athlete endorses, among many things, a fat-draining method to cook meat. George Foreman. Correct. He played the titular character in 1997's George of the Jungle. Brendan Fraser. Correct. Jimmy Stewart's character in It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey. Yes. This actor's famous 1980s TV character loves it when a plan comes together. Uh, George Jefferson. Incorrect. That was... Wheezy, I love it when a plan George. comes together. <laughs> and walks out. Yeah. <laughs> you miss Boy George. Oh, yeah. George sure. Allen O'Dowd is Boy George. George Clooney has a tequila brand. Uh -huh. uh, you got that. You got that. You missed George Pappard. Is oh, Hannibal. He 18. loves it. Loves uh, it when yeah. a plan comes 18, together. not George Jefferson. Not George Jefferson. All right, Shit. Ray. Oh, I didn't do good. Okay. Okay, he got four. Got seven clues coming your way. Let's okay. see how you can do 
He wrote, and is writing, the Game of Thrones book series. George R.R. R. Martin. Correct. He was the first actor to replace Sean Connery as James Bond in the original series. George Lazenby. Correct. He played past and present George McFly in Back to the Future. Uh, oh God, what's his name? Next, past. He wrote the opera Porgy and Bess. George Gershwin. From 2009 to 2011, he had a talk show on TBS. George Lopez. Correct. His comedy career included 14 HBO stand-up specials. George Carlin. Where does George Jetson work? Uh, pass. All right, five correct. The uh, guy's name he's in Willard. Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover! Crispin Glover and Spacely Space Sprockets. Ah, uh, yes. Is, of course, where George Jetson works. All right, King George. Ray has been crowned King George. Ooh, that makes sense. And it's the summer of Rob Schneider. It's the summer of Rob! <laughs> Do you know the Crispin Glover stuff with Back to the Future 2? How they like used his image and stuff. Like he didn't want to do the movie, so they like did prosthetics for George McFly and Back to the Future Two, and like he sued for oh, using his that. likeness. Yeah, it was like a big Hollywood like legal case and stuff, like using his likeness without his wanting to do it. Yeah. What's he doing now? Does he still act? He goes on podcasts telling that story. Okay, <laughs> yeah, great. he's gonna be here oh, in an actually, hour. <laughs> here he is now. Oh wow. Uh, Ray, where can people find us? Oh, uh, on our Instagram. This was a thing pod. What about the website? No. Oh www.thiswasathing.com or patreon.com slash thing. You can go ahead and, you know, log on, you know, devote some cashola. Five bucks a month, old Lucy level, get you exclusive content you can't get anywhere else. Nowhere. Nowhere. You can't get it anywhere else. I love that. Unless it's already bootlegged by now. And if, if we're getting bootlegged, then that means we're doing something right. Bootleg us, folks. Yeah. Till next time. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was a Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was a Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really liked what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was a Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 